you for listening to Embassy City Church's audio podcast. This week, Dr. Michelle Bankson shares with us a message titled, Even Christians Get Depressed. We pray God speaks to you through this message and His Word today. For more information on our church, please visit us at embassycity.com. I'm here today introducing a new series. You know, we've had some heavy-hitting series in the last few months, and today is the start of the new series, Body Blows. And Tim said, Michelle, hit it hard. So I'm going to hit it hard because the enemy is going down today. But really, I'm here first today to ask your forgiveness. I'm here to ask forgiveness on behalf of the church at large, not specifically Embassy City Church but the church at large, and to ask you forgiveness on behalf of the mental health community, because you see, I think we've done you a disservice. There's a growing problem, and it's getting worse every year, and I think if the church had handled it correctly, I think if the mental health community had handled it correctly, the problem wouldn't be getting worse, it would be getting better. And as a mental health professional, as a neuropsychologist in the field for 25 years, and as a leader, in the church as a Christian for over 45 years, I think if we'd handled it right, it wouldn't be getting worse. You see, depression by 2020 is gonna be our greatest epidemic worldwide. It already is the greatest source of disability worldwide. Every year in the United States, almost 20 million adults are diagnosed with depression. One in 10 adults are diagnosed in the United States every year. And in their lifetime, one in four adults is diagnosed. So if you will stretch out your hands in the row, you will touch someone who's been diagnosed. So while you might be sitting there thinking, oh, this sermon is not for me, can I just assure you, even if you have not been touched, you know somebody who has. And before you start thinking, oh, can I just head for the back door now because this doesn't relate to me, everything that I tell you today, I promise it relates to you, whether you've been touched by depression or anxiety or low self-esteem or anger, it relates. So I promise if you'll just stick around, I only have about 12 hours worth to talk about. So I promise you'll get out, you know, in time for breakfast in the morning. Statistics tell us that this incidence is going up every year by 20%. That's why I tell you I have to ask your forgiveness. Because if we were handling it right in the church, if we were handling it right in the mental health community, that incidence wouldn't be going up, it would be going down. And I have to tell you, I handled it wrong for the first part of my career. And that's why I'm asking you your forgiveness. But the Lord has since shown me the right way to handle it. And that's why I'm here. I'm here to tell you that hope really does prevail. And as a church, we can turn that statistic around. But if we don't handle it right, it's a deadly, deadly condition. Because every year, 45,000 Americans commit suicide. And for every committed suicide, there are 25 more unsuccessful attempts. That's over 1 million attempted suicides every year in America. Embassy City, can I tell you a secret? Can I tell you a secret? I want you to lean in because a lot of people don't know this. 
Can I tell you a secret? Even, even Christians get depressed. But I've had pastors tell me, oh, not in my church. I have. But can I tell you, 70% of pastors get depressed. Even Christians get depressed. And you say, well, Michelle, how do you know that? Because I was one of them. But if you don't believe me, just open up your Bible. What about Jonah? What about Elijah? What about Job, who tore his clothes? And what about David? How many times did he write, why so downcast, oh, my soul? Why so downcast, oh, my soul? And I'm so glad that God put those stories in the Bible because, oh, my gosh, it made me feel so much better. It made me feel like I'm not alone. But as a neuropsychologist, I see patients every week who come into my office, and they're depressed, and they don't even know it. So God put on my heart a burden to write a book as a resource for people who can't make it into my office, because I'm just one person, and there's only so many hours in a day and only so many hours in a week. And I was working myself to death, trying to meet the needs of everybody. I was working 100 hours a week. I would work until midnight, and I would go home for about four hours. I'd take a nap, I'd take a quick shower, and I'd be back at the office by three or four in the morning, trying to meet the needs of everybody. So God put a desire on my heart to write a resource for people who couldn't come into my office, who wouldn't come into my office. And no sooner did I say, okay, God, I'll write the book. And he said, okay, but Michelle, we already have enough doctors who've written books. You're going to have to share your own story. I said, okay, but God, you know, I don't think my story is really that impactful, but I'll share it. You see, at that point, my story really amounted to the fact that I grew up in a home with a depressed mother who was depressed my entire childhood, but we didn't call it that. It's just the way she was. But her sister was depressed, her mother was depressed, and she went to her grave being depressed. It breaks my heart. And at the point that I told God I would write the book, I had gone through postpartum depression after the birth of our oldest son. Many of you know him. He usually sits on the front row, but he's off at college now. But I got help, and that resolved. But two weeks to the day after I told God, all right, I'll write that book, and I'll share my story, I became deathly ill. And I'm not exaggerating when I say deathly ill. I was seeing patients, and I doubled over in pain. I was taken to the emergency room, and it's a long story, but I'll cut it short just to say I underwent two surgeries. I was kept alive on IV hydration and nutrition. I was on bed rest for five months. I was bruised from my neck to my wrists. I went from 113 pounds down to a skeletal 74, which for a frame of reference is 30 pounds lighter than I stand before you today. I couldn't work for five months. I couldn't be much of a wife. I certainly wasn't much of a mother. And all I could do was sleep pray, watch sermons online, and listen to praise and worship music for 24-7. And I got to the point where I said, God, if this is my life, I don't want this life. And so I plunged into a very deep, dark night of the soul. That was after I said I'd write the book and I'd share my story. But I was the doctor with all the alphabet soup after my name, and it didn't save me from getting depressed. You see, nobody is immune. Nobody. 
not the doctor, not the Christian. But I was the doctor, so I knew what to do, right? So I did everything I told my patients to do for over 20 years. I went to counseling, I tried medication, I ate right, I exercised, I got enough sleep, and it helped. I want you to hear me, it helped, but it wasn't enough to take the depression away. It wasn't. And so I cried out to God and I said, God, I can't go back and be that doctor. I can't, I can't go back and be that doctor because I won't recommend something that I don't know works and it's not working. So you either have to take me home with you or you have to tell me what the missing piece is. And as clear as day, he, resp- he whispered into my heart, not in an audible voice, but he whispered into my heart and he said, Michelle, Unless you are going to deal with the spiritual root of disease, it is like you are putting a Band-Aid on an infection and expecting it to get well. And it was like a light bulb went off, and it was like, you're right. I had been dealing with the physical. I had been dealing with the mental. I had been dealing with the emotional, but not the spiritual. You see, we have to recognize that we have an enemy. We have to recognize that we have an enemy. So I'm here today to bring you good news. If you'll open up your Bible to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. It says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. For the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come and with it the the day of God's anger against their enemies. To all who mourn in Israel, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. In their righteousness, they will be like great oaks that the Lord has planted for his own glory. Embassy City, God wants to do good things this morning for you. But first, we have to recognize that we have an enemy. We have to recognize that we have an enemy. You see, he says in Ephesians 6, 12. Y'all, not 6, 2, 6, 12. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood armies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. So the battle for depression, I'm not going to tell you there's not a genetic component, there's not a chemical component. There is, but the real battle for depression is in our mind. The verse I want us to focus on today is John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But thank goodness for the second half of that verse because that's where our hope is. 
but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. You know, most pastors give us three points, and I know you're taking notes because you're Embassy City Church. So I hope somebody's taking notes for me today because I usually sit on the front row taking notes and it feels a little weird not taking notes. So somebody take notes for me today. Pastors usually give three points. Well, today I'm giving two sets of three points because I know you're an advanced crowd and you can handle it. Okay? Point number one, the enemy steals our joy. Why does he do that? Because he wants to take that from us, which will attract us to others and attract them to our God. How does he do that? One of the biggest ways he does that is he takes our attention off God and he puts it on others and ourselves. You know, Theodore Roosevelt says, comparison is a thief of all joy. I have found that to be true. As soon as I start comparing myself to others, it puts my attention on what God is doing in them and through them and for them. And it takes my attention off what is God doing for me and in me and through me. And then I start feeling like I'm less important, I'm less worthy, I'm less adequate. But I want you to hear me. It makes me start feeling like I'm less important and less worthy and less adequate. Feelings are strong and they are compelling but they lie. And the enemy is a liar. Our feelings are only the outward manifestation of the thoughts we believe. Write that down. If you get nothing else from what I tell you today, our feelings are the outward manifestation of the thoughts we believe. And too often, we're believing the thoughts that the enemy is implanting in our head instead of God's truth. You know, when I was so sick, when I was so depressed, I started believing I was joy immune because nothing I did would bring back joy. I remember telling that to Sheila Walsh when she interviewed me on Life Today, and she said it much sexier in her Scottish brogue. She said, joy immune. Oh, that's a new one. That actually sounded good when she said it. <laughs> but that was a lie from the enemy because the truth is Jesus said in John 15, I have told you this so that your joy may be complete. And so when the enemy would say, Michelle, you're never going to experience joy. I'd have to hang on to that. And the other verse that I would have to hang on to was Psalm 35 that said, weeping may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning. And so I would have to say, God, you promised my joy would come in the morning. I'm clinging on to that. And sometimes, can I tell you, that night might last for a long time, but he promises joy will come in the morning. So point number two, the enemy kills our peace. And how does he do that? He brings on anxiety. Fear and anxiety is a misappropriation of our attentional resources. Because we get anxious when we take our attention off God and we put it on what's going on around us. Right? When the 
enemy can get us to focus on everything that's going on instead of on God, we lose our peace. But the truth is, it says in Isaiah, you will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. So we've got to keep our attention on him, not on our situation. But the second way that the enemy kills our peace is through shame. You know shame. Shame says you are a mistake. Oh, no. You made a mistake. We all make mistakes. Every one of us. And with shame comes the pesky stepsister guilt. I've hardly ever known anyone who struggles with depression who doesn't also struggle with guilt. We sin, and then we feel guilty about it. And the enemy goes, oh, you really think God can forgive you now? Look what you did. You think other people will accept you if they knew? Look what you did. But the truth is, there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. You remember that? You reclaim your peace. Point number three. The enemy attempts to destroy our identity. That's one of the biggest issues that I see walk through the door of my practice. It's one of the biggest reasons I think marriages fail. I think that's one of the biggest reasons for church splits is because we forget or we don't know and we don't stand on our identity in Christ. But you see, this is not a new problem. It started in the Garden of Eden. The enemy whispered to Eve, oh, you want to be like God? Take a bite of this apple. Eve should have said, I'm already like God. I'm made in his image. But she didn't know, so she took the bait. She ate the apple. Then she offered it up to her husband. And he didn't know his identity as the spiritual head of the household, or he would have said, baby, we don't need to do that. Let's go to the Father and ask for forgiveness. But he didn't, so he took the bait too. You see, before that, they were naked and unashamed and walked with God every day in the garden. But after they took the bait, oh, everything changed. God walked in the garden next, and he said, Adam, where are you? Nothing. And God said, Adam, where are you? And Adam said, I'm here, Lord. I'm hiding because I was naked and ashamed. And God said, Adam, who told you you were naked? Because you see, that's what the enemy does. He tempts us to sin, and then he taunts us with our sin. He says, do you really think God can forgive you now? Do you think he can love you now? Do you think he can accept you now? You see, God has already forgiven us. He has separated our sin as far as the east is from the west. That's the end of the enemy's influence on us. I'm so grateful for the story of Job for many reasons. You know, I've had, I've had several people say, Michelle, you're like a modern-day Jobette. 
the very day my book Hope Prevails released, my husband Scott was diagnosed with cancer. You think that was a coincidence? It was like the enemy going, you really think hope prevails? Oh yeah, I do. Because my God is still on his throne. And he sits there healed in Jesus' name. But people will say, Michelle, what else? I'm like, no, don't even go there. No, we're not receiving that in Jesus' name. But I'm so appreciative of the story of Job because God allowed the enemy to have an influence in Job's life. But he also put a limit on what the enemy could do. He said, sure, you can wipe out his family. You can wipe out his livestock. You could destroy his home. You could inflict illness, but you can't kill him. But then Job said, oh, I kind of wish you'd kill me. (laughs) But God puts a limit on what the enemy can do in our life, and he puts a limit on the impact of depression for us too. So if you're taking notes, point number one, the enemy doesn't determine our worth. God does. You see, the value of something, the worth of something is determined by the price that is paid for it. So your value, your worth of a car, your home, the meal at a restaurant is determined by how much you pay for it, right? Jesus paid the price for you with his life. Nobody before or after did that. But he said, you are of infinite worth, so much so that I'm willing to pay my life for you. And so when the enemy says, you're just worthless, you can say, no, it is written in John 3.16 that I am infinite worth. So get behind me, Satan. Point number two, the enemy doesn't determine our destiny. You see? If you are a Christ follower, if you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, your destiny is secure. But the enemy would like to whisper in your ear, you have messed up so bad. You think God is going to accept you into his heaven now? You have to be perfect to get into heaven. Well, that part's true. But what the enemy doesn't say is, but Jesus already paid the price. Jesus said, Father, let me take their imperfection on me. Let me take their sin on me. Let me pay the price for their sin so that they can be with us in glory. So now when Jesus, when God looks at us, he looks at us through the righteousness of Jesus because the truth is when we were utterly helpless Christ came at just the right time and died for us as sinners. Point number three. Nothing, not even the enemy, not depression, can separate us from God's love. You see, when we're in that pit of depression, we are so susceptible to hearing the enemy's lies. And the enemy would like to say, nobody loves you. Nobody understands. You're all alone. I've heard those whispers, those screams. They were deafening. But the truth is, 
according to Jeremiah 31.3, God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Depression doesn't change that. Your sin doesn't change that. So what do we do when we fall prey to the enemy's lies? Because you see, it all comes back to the cross. The enemy just puts a camouflage on all of it. It all comes back to the cross. It's a finished work. But what do we do when we realize, wow, you're right, Michelle. I've, I've been listening to the lies of the enemy. Whether we've fallen into the pit of depression or anxiety or low self-esteem or anger or whatever, the Bible says we have to recover ourselves. What does that mean? It means, first of all, we have to recognize and take responsibility for the fact that, yeah, we've believed his lies. And then second, we repent and we say, Father, I'm so sorry. I believe the lies of the enemy instead of your truth. And then third, we rebuke the enemy. We go, I'm not listening to you anymore. I'm going to believe the truth of my father. And then fourth, we receive God's forgiveness and his love and his mercy and his grace and his joy and his peace. And then we begin the hard work. It is hard work. It's simple. It has to be simple because the Bible says come as a child. So it has to be simple enough that even a child could do it. But that doesn't mean it's easy. It's hard work. I would not really be a neuropsychologist if I didn't throw at least one brain fact in there for you. So I have to share with you that every day we have between about 50 and 70 thousand thoughts a day. And according to 2 Corinthians 10.5, Scripture says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every, what does that say? Every, every, to make it obedient to Christ. Um, that's a lot of work. That is a lot of work. It's not easy. So that means when you hear, I am weak, you say, oh no. It is written that when I am weak, he is strong. When you hear, I am worthless, you say, oh no. It is written that according to John 3.16, I am worthy. When you hear in your head, I am a failure, you say, oh no. It is written that I am more than an overcomer and I am victorious in Christ Jesus. It is hard work. And there were days when I was so sick in my sick bed and I was so depressed that I said, God, I don't know if I can do it. But my motivation is sitting there on that front row and is sitting in a pew in Florida today. Because the enemy stole so much from my family. He stole from me. He stole from my mother. He stole from my aunt. He stole from my grandmother. And I said, it is done with my generation. He is not going to steal from the next generation. 
you can make the same decision. And for me, it started with one simple post-it note. One simple post-it note. I had to write down a scripture to refute the lie of the enemy so that every time I heard the lie, I would read it and I stuck it to my IV pole and I would read it out loud. Why? Because scripture says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I think we even have a picture. It's on my IV pole. And then I wrote down another one and I would stick it on my nightstand. I think we've got a picture of that. I would write down so many scriptures. Every time I'd hear a lie, I'd go, what is God's truth? What does God say? And by the end, I had over 100 scriptures. They were plastered all over my bedroom wall. I think we've got, yeah, see? By the end, I had over 100 scriptures. They were on my IV pool. They were on my bedroom wall. They were on my bathroom mirror. They were on my car dashboard. They were on the light switches. Scott will tell you, they were everywhere. And every time I would see them, I would recite them out loud until they became part of me. Because it is a sad state of fears when the enemy knows the scripture more than we do. You see, the enemy tempted Jesus with the scriptures. But Jesus came back and said, it is written. And that is what we have to do. You see, I love the story of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. Because early in my career, I was really mystified. I was like, Jesus, it's kind of an odd question that you'd ask the lame man if you want to get well. Of course he wants to get well. He's laying there by the pool. He's just waiting for someone to push him over. But the longer I've been in private practice, the more I realize a lot of people come to the pool. They don't really want to get well. They just want people to see them sick. And a lot of people would rather pop a pill than do the hard work. I want you to hear me. I'm not down on medication. I'm not. But you have to do the hard work if you really want change. I want you to hear me. I did therapy. I did medication. I did the diet. I did the exercise. And it all helped. But the Bible says his word heals. You've got to get his word down in you if you want healing. That's why I say, as a church and as a mental health community, I think we've done a disservice by not addressing depression in the church, by not addressing anxiety in the church, but by not teaching where the real healing comes from. And I'm here to tell you, it works. Because Scripture says, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, Satan is defeated, and that is my testimony. And nobody can argue against my testimony. So I'm wondering, I'm wondering what the Holy Spirit is saying to you today. Maybe you're sitting there and you're saying, wow, I wonder if I'm one in four. Or maybe it's not depression. 
that he's bringing up, but maybe you're saying, I don't know this Jesus she's talking about. Oh, he can't wait to meet you. He's made all the difference in my life. Maybe you're dealing with worries and fears. Maybe you're saying, Michelle, I don't know about that joy that you're talking about. Can I tell you, I have people come up to me now and say, you've got such joy. And it brings tears of joy to my eyes because there were days that I thought I was joy immune. And I realize Jesus has brought his joy back to me. And he can do the same for you. And he wants to. So I wonder... What's the Holy Spirit saying to you today? Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you would like to know more about Embassy City Church, please visit us at embassycity.com and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Embassy Irving.